0: This is Profiles in Risk.
1: Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes, who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot Now, on to the show.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. On a beautiful summer day, I am pleased to introduce Clark Poland, Clark is a program analyst with FEMA, and he lives in Washington, D.C., but he's originally from the show-me state of Missouri. Clark, welcome. Thanks, Nick, for having
1: me on. It's been a pleasure getting to chat with you in the past about some of the other challenges and and opportunities to expand coverages in both earthquake, flood, and, and some of the other coverages of insurance, and to help talk to some of the listeners about other ways that the insurance industry can help the public at large recover from disasters more quickly.
0: Yeah. So we we met at the FEMA flood conference Mm -hmm. in Washington. Mm -hmm. You reached out to me, which thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, what was what I found very interesting at that conference was I was amazed. I was expecting a lot more conflict between there was a lot of old school flood professionals, uh, FEMA floodplain managers. And then there was the new school a lot of the private markets coming in, a lot of tech companies. I was amazed at how many vendors were there. I was expecting some conflict. I didn't see that. I saw a lot of working together, especially from FEMA, especially people like you reaching out. So I want to go into that part of it first. Let me, let me give you an opportunity to describe, you know, give you 30 seconds or a minute. What is it that you do at FEMA?
1: Uh, so, so my role with FEMA is I work in the uh, Federal Insurance Directorate, which handles the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, specifically, I work with our industry management group. So my role is specifically working with the 63 private write-your-own companies who uh, administer and sell the national flood insurance policies um, across the country. As well as working with the right-your-owns, I work with sort of the three major vendor third-party administrators for the companies, as well as sort of the network of agents to make sure that the entire ecosystem of the people who are selling flood insurance across the country are both doing it responsibly for federal funding, being good stewards of federal funds, as well as working together towards our common goals and purposes to making sure that everyone is covered against the peril of flood. We've seen so many times that insured survivors recover more quickly. Communities recover more quickly. And all around, it's just very good for, for the national ecosystem if, if there's more insurance available.
0: So that was the, that was the amazing thing, was uh, the willingness of FEMA, which, you know, being, being a government agency, they could put up a wall around themselves and just say, uh, this is the way we want it to be. But I was immensely satisfied with what you just described, which is, you just want to make sure that after, federal, after natural disasters, when you know, uh, FEMA or any other kind of agency comes in to sort of over, oversee what is going on, they just want everybody to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And so it seems like it's uh, one of FEMA's incentives to encourage the private market to help with that goal.
1: Yeah, so, so absolutely. So over, over my shoulder right now, you can see we've got a, a little poster that says, uh, let's take moonshots. So last year, back at the flood conference, we publicly announced that a national goal for FEMA, and the country as a large, is to double the number of structures covered against the peril of flood. So right now, there's roughly 4 million uh, structures that are covered. Um, we're, we're shooting to have 8 million covered by the year 2022. And we know that we can't do this alone. You know, there have been various estimates about the size of the, the entirety of the flood insurance market. One that I've seen thrown out there is $40 billion in total premiums if, if all the structures were covered against flood. Um, right now FEMA writes about $4 billion, you know, give or take. Um, recently in, in 2017 the private insurance industry has, has uh, writes about $670, $700 million, you know, kind of depending on, on how you want to define it and look at it. Um, so we know that there are so many other structures out there that aren't covered. Um, and whether it's FEMA, whether it's the private sector. You know, just kind of going back to that same message is that we know it is so much better for everyone if they are covered. The, the other sort of opportunities that, that FEMA gives in disasters, um, sort of our individual assistance grants and, and some of the other things that people think of FEMA as doing in disasters, they, they're not nearly capable of making you as whole as the uh, flood insurance can. So, so one sort of statistic is um, in uh, Harris County, which is the Houston area, Uh, following Hurricane Harvey for our individual assistance programs. We gave out roughly an average of $4,200 in terms of grant money for the individual assistance program, but in terms of our average close payment for flood, uh, it was $130,000. So you can see the vast disparity and the ability for people to come back from from disasters. Um, And I I don't want to speak for you, but I know I personally couldn't come back uh, without having the flood insurance or, or other insurance. So we know that it's crucial for, for people's well-being and, and their uh, futures.
0: Yeah, I think I have $4,200 just in books <laughs> behind me. So uh, that, that's a huge problem. That yep. is, you know, I, I, I don't want to transition too far off or flood, but that was something I noticed when I lived in the state of California was when you talk to people about why they don't buy earthquake insurance. Of course, cost comes up, but there's the myth that... The Federal government will come in and rescue them, and that's not how it works, as you just described it's it's and and that money a lot of that money usually you know I looked at like Hurricane Sandy figures, there was a lot of s b a loans and other stuff a lot of them are loans mm-hmm. they're not necessarily just money that you get and you know uh, what what type of efforts? Should we, at the, we as the, in the private market, but also FEMA, what are we, what are we going to do about educating uh, both businesses and consumers that you know, these, these grants or loans that are coming in, they are loans, and they're not going to be adequate to get you back on your feet? What can we do about that?
1: Honestly, that's, that's a really good question. It's, it's a really large hurdle. Um, just, just to explain to people risk, um, it's, for some of these catastrophic events, it's just so hard to get to conceptualize the, the you know the, the likelihood that this is going to happen, um, so a lot of community outreach efforts, um, one of the things that we've worked hard, especially in the flood sector, to do, is to work with what we're calling intermediaries. So we know that there are more ways for people to get information than just having you know the, the federal government blast out a message, um, so working with local community officials. Um, working with, you know, your neighbors. So, so your neighbors are an important source of information about uh, what risk is. You know, if, if they've had a loss, it's a great sort of story to, to help tell and, and share the story of, of the value of, of some of these products w- without having to, you know, sort of be heavy-handed on our part.
0: Well, there is, there is that, there's a wonderful image. I'll see if I can dig it up. I think it is from Hurricane Harvey, and it shows two homes side by side. Uh, one had flood insurance. The other one didn't. One looked like a perfectly normal home. They were both damaged. Mm-hmm. One looked like a perfectly normal home. The other one had all kinds of debris uh, piled up in the front, and you can see that the home was still slightly damaged. There was there was something wrong with the home. Uh, to me, that was like, that tells it all. You know, it's like you can get back. It's almost like Pennywise and Pound Foolish. You can wait. The government may help you. But you're gonna kind of live in misery for a while. Um, so th- th- I'll see if I can dig that up. But I- I'm sorry, you can continue.
1: Oh no, no. I, so so one of the the we recently released a, a four-year strategic plan uh, that goes 2018 to 2022 that highlights the agency's uh, priorities and goals and you know sort of three top-line goals. Um, first is to build a culture preparedness, and that's all that this you know is one of the, the three priorities is to say. Hey, we need to work together as a community um, to inf- encourage people to um, reduce their risk, uh, to close the insurance gap, uh, to make sure that they're covered against these perils because these are things that we know about, and we know that that's not a message that we, as a single agency, can do. So, it's working a lot with our, our state, our local, our tribal, and our territorial partners, um, as well as people and outside of the traditional sort of governmental chain. So. Uh, the nonprofits, um, you know, a lot of the for-profit companies, uh, insurance companies especially, can value and have benefit from uh, mitigation efforts. Uh, whether it's you know reducing the total loss um, or to to consolidate some of the losses, um, to help set better rates. You know, it it, it helps in everyone uh, to reduce the risk.
0: Yeah, could you talk a little bit about uh, FEMA's structure? Uh, what, what struck me as well was I noticed uh, a lot of folks at the flood conference walking around where it said like, you know, FEMA, some branch or some unit, and they would be, you know, in Maine. You know, I met a lot of new Englanders, uh, that way. How, how are the tentacles spread out and what, what do those individual, I guess their branch offices, what do they do? So, so primarily FEMA is kind of structured, um, with one
1: headquarters here in Washington, D.C., as well as 10 uh, regional offices spread across the the country. Um, So those are kind of the the permanent fixed facilities that we have. But one of the most incredible things that that FEMA does um, is respond to disasters. And prior to my life coming to the National Flood Insurance Program, I I was one of those people who would be ready to deploy in 24 to 48 hours um, wherever there was a disaster. And so fundamentally what what ends up happening where you've met people across the country is uh, through one of our authorities, which is the Stafford Act, um, which is kind of what we, you know, the public tends to generally think of as the disaster efforts of of FEMA, um, is the state governor will request an emergency declaration and request that the president uh, make a presidentially declared disaster. And then once that happens, uh, once the president makes that declaration – then the whole FEMA apparatus comes into a new state and stands up uh, a totally new office, um, what we call a joint field office, which works with the the state and local counterparts as well. Um, And we set up uh, a whole new organization to help with that specific state and that specific disaster. And uh, honestly, um, you know, I I love all of my flood insurance brethren um, and I'm sitting in the office now, but I I truly, no, no, I, I think one of the most incredible things that we do as an agency is stand up a whole new organization, um, within moments notice. Um, you know, you, there, there are YouTube videos online of, of, um, sort of stop motion of us literally setting up an office inside of like a, a, a big box store or some other sort of, uh, abandoned office. And we go from, uh, an abandoned unused facility to a fully functional office staffed with hundreds of people, um, in less than a week. And it's, it's truly incredible the, the responsiveness of the agency and the ability to respond locally and make sure that we're able to provide federal assets to local support uh, as quickly as
0: possible. Is that a FEMA YouTube channel? Uh, I believe it is
1: on the F- FEMA YouTube channel. We okay. have a channel um, which has a number of videos, um, including some specific stories about um, people who had flood insurance and the value that they've seen in having that that product.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll for the listeners that are watching, I'll see if I can find those and try to embed those in the video or put those in the show notes. And,
1: and of course we also have Twitter and Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and a, and a full social media presence. As well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. I'll, I will link to all of those. Um, besides, besides the, uh, l- the little bit of money that is granted when a natural disaster occurs, uh, what are some of the other misconceptions when it comes to, uh, what FEMA does, what they can provide, um, you know, where, where do we as the public kind of, we, we might be getting it wrong?
1: So I, I think one of the, the biggest misconceptions is that we only operate during the disaster times. Um, so, so FEMA's mission is that we help people before, during, and after disasters. And generally, people only see, you know, the, the FEMA polos uh, during the disasters. That's generally the only time you see us. But we have entire branches that are dedicated to, to community preparedness uh, individual preparedness, um, so like ready.gov, which is a website focused on uh, individual preparedness that's a, a FEMA product. Um, we also work with with the states and the, the locals um, to develop disaster plans to develop hazard mitigation plans, and to just reduce overall the the uncertainty that comes with a large event um, and then of course on the the tail end after there has been an event and you know after the, the camera crews have left. Uh, we continue to do a lot of effort with with the locals um, to make sure that the communities can recover quickly, wholly, and to make sure that um, some of the, the important f- assets and infrastructure that people are dependent upon um, is, is restored back to normal.
0: I was thinking of Hurricane Harvey. So we are approaching hurricane season. So we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of Harvey, which then transitions right over to the one-year anniversary of Irma. Uh, and then there was Hurricane Maria. So there's event after event after event. Looking back, you know, I, I think of um, the state of Florida as probably the most prepared uh, municipality. Let's call it a municipality in, in probably in the world when it comes to uh, hurricanes because they get so many. They're just so well prepared. Um, the the transition for FEMA to, you know, how, how helpful was it that the state of Florida is is – well prepared when it comes to hurricanes and the transition from Harvey to Irma because Irma could have been a much bigger disaster, which would have put FEMA in a very tough spot because you had, you stood up that entity in Harvey and now you have going to have to divert resources to Irma. Um, how beneficial is it to have the municipalities be prepared themselves?
1: You, you know, that, that's, that's one of the beauties about working with 50 states, six six different territories and and all the different uh, sovereign Indian uh, tribes is that there is um, this wide variety of skills, wide variety of experiences and abilities. Uh, So one of the things that we like to do is to help um, different states look at some of the successes of other states. Um, One of the things that we're heavily invested in is making sure that lessons learned after heavy disasters um, are shared, um, that they are good messages to carry across to other people and help Make sure that, you know, some of the assets of Florida, um, you know, the best practices that, that they've used, um, some of the successes that they've had can translate to all the other different uh, territories and, and states that we support. Um, it, it's just one of those great things that, that we have so many different opportunities to look at different methods that have worked, some that haven't, and, and work to, to build that best community practice.
0: Yeah, so can we talk, besides the moonshot, can we talk about other goals that uh, FEMA might have? Um, and, and that can be beyond just the NFIP. What, uh, when it comes to natural disasters, um, what, are, what are FEMA's other moonshots? So, so
1: one of the other moonshots that we have um, is, is that we're working to quadruple the amount of mitigation dollars that are being invested across the country. Um, So one of the things that we recently uh, did is we completed another sort of study about the effectiveness of mitigation dollars. Um, We found that there is a four to uh, $1 ROI in terms of code enforcement. Uh, Just just adopting better codes um, provides so much loss avoidance um, across all perils. Uh, And then we found that for every sort of federal dollar that's invested in mitigation efforts, there's a $6 ROI on that as well. So, by quadrupling the amount that we're spending on that, um, it helps decrease the overall amount of disaster suffering that that's been, um, that might come about. Um, we also, as, as you mentioned, uh, well, as mentioned earlier, is we're working to prepare uh, for catastrophic events. Uh, last year was a perfect example of why we need to work uh, and, and continue to improve all of our state's efforts um, to make sure that everyone is able to respond as quickly and as wholly um, as anyone else. Um, we don't get to choose where the next disaster is going to be. So we need to do everything that we can to make sure that everyone uh, has an equal opportunity to, to have the same sort of resources and response efforts um, as anyone else.
0: Yeah. When, when you talk about mitigation efforts, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to hurricane Sandy and I know that on the coastline of New Jersey, there's still some homes that have not been repaired because they're are, they are running into code issues now. So, you know, municipalities, now say that you know if your if your property has been more than fifty percent damaged, that uh, it has to be elevated beyond a certain amount, and there are folks that can't afford to do that. That is, elevating a home is costs tens of thousands, sometimes a hundred thousand dollars to elevate a home. Would would there be mitigation dollars available for for those kinds of uh, disaster survivors?
1: So, so, well, I'll, I'll actually back this up a little bit and tie it back to insurance is one of the standard coverages inside of the, the standard flood insurance policy offered by FEMA is a $30,000 increased cost of compliance. Um, so if, if the community does determine that it's substantially damaged and now that the home is out of compliance with the codes, um, you can be eligible for up to $30,000 um, for, for code compliance. Um, that said, that might not cover the whole thing. Um, so there are other opportunities and other grants, both whether it's federal, whether it's state um, or local, um, depending on sort of the the source to to help people uh, rebuild um, in in a way that we know makes things safer.
0: Yeah, will will there be money available to? I know that there's uh, in some areas there's a push to buy the properties um, and and take <clears throat> them take them out of the inventory, you know, and convert them to uh, parks or marshlands or Whatever, uh, w- would that be available as well?
1: So, you know, again, it's kind of going to depend. Um, sort of the, the general aspect of, of the way that FEMA works is that everything is sort of federally supported, state managed, and locally executed. So a lot of it comes down to the specific localities um, about how they want to use some of the grants and, and the funding sources. Um, but if, if we can sh- look back um, 25 years to the, to the great floods of 1993, which were uh, Within about a month or so of, of the, the crest of the Mississippi River in the St. Louis area, um, the state of Missouri, the state of Illinois, uh, a number of other states, sort of along the Mississippi and Missouri valleys, have done a tremendous amount of buybacks in the floodplains. Uh, and we've seen a lot of success with that. Um, so, being from the St. Louis area, it, it seems only natural <laughs> that I was drawn to, to floods. Because um, I, I remember the 93 floods, I remember the 98 floods, um, I remember the 2008 floods and literally sandbagging on levees um, during that time. And because of a lot of the mitigation efforts and a lot of the buybacks and a lot of the other sort of floodplain management efforts that were conducted, uh, we were never able to see a uh, disaster with quite the same scale as, as that 93 floods. Um, and it just, it shows as a, a success story of, of how things have worked um, positively when the whole community engages um, when all the partners along the watershed you know, aren't looking at their specific slice of the pie, but they're looking together to manage the whole watershed and to make sure that changes that one community is doing upstream aren't affecting those downstream or, or vice versa. Um, And, and I think that's a a good example. Yeah.
0: So uh, transitioning back to true insurance, uh, some Mm -hmm. things that I generally hear, you know, when I go around and I'm talking about flood is that you know, there's a concern that if the private market comes in, they're going to cherry pick all the, all the, the lowest risks, leaving a, a more severe pool of risks for the NFIP. Uh, what's their general thought about that? Um, it, it's, it's a legitimate concern, right? It, you know, of course, weather carriers coming in probably want to minimize the amount of risk that they want to take. So if they are pulling out the lowest risk stuff, that only leaves the highest risk stuff uh, what is, are you familiar with any kind of conversations or feedback from FEMA or the NFIP on on that particular concern?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, like you said, that is a concern. Uh, it's one of the things that we're paying close attention to. Um, one of the, the recent changes that we've made in terms of the way that we operate the Write Your Own program um, <clears throat> is every year we sort of have an agreement with companies who are, are participating. Uh, and starting in October 1 of this year uh, with the, the new arrangement, that we published back in April, uh, we're removing the non-compete clause. So it's, it's something that's removing the non-compete clause that would allow uh, write-your-own companies to also write private flood. Um, so it's one of those things that we're, we're, we're very concerned about. We're, we're monitoring closely. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, we roughly cover, you know, four or five million structures currently. Uh, looking at sort of a national inventory, um, you know, there's 100 to 120 million structures across this country. So you can see that there's so many more market opportunities beyond just what FEMA has right now. Um, along with a lot of the different ways that different companies are measuring the risk, you know, actuarial strategies, strategies, their underwriting guidelines, um, the the whole sort of gamut of, of ways that the private market, um, which can pick and choose which risks that it wants to ensure. Um, they have so many other opportunities that it doesn't make, it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to just go for the NFIP pool um, because there are areas there where we're more competitive than they you know, the private market is. Uh, and there are areas where the private market is more competitive than we are. And we don't necessarily see that there's going to be a clap yeah. the entire time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you should come with me on my pitches because that, <laughs> that, that, that's exactly my message. Um, and, and you brought up, you know, uh, over a hundred million structures in the United States, the vast majority of which uh, do not buy flood insurance. Those are, Probably the lowest risk. Uh, It's hard. It's hard. You know, there are homes on hills or homes with uh, um, steep elevation that just have very, very low probability of flooding, and the private market should go after those. It's something I stress all the time uh, for private carriers coming in. If they're just trying to poach the NFIP, that's a bad strategy. You know, there's there's not enough there. Uh, In the you know, the NFIP only has a small fraction of all the inventory. So I, I I agree with you. I think that's a that's a very bad strategy. Well wow. and, and the other thing that the private
1: market can do too is, is they can be a lot more innovative in some of the products that they can offer so if if a, a private carrier wants to just add an endorsement for the flood peril that 's something that we can 't do um, having to to offer it as a standalone product um, so there are other sorts of cost savings that they can they can target there as well as some other strategies that um, we just quite frankly can 't do with with our current setup um, so there 's more than enough opportunities. Um, the, the, the pie is too big um, to be trying to to go after other people's slices.
0: Yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, a lot of wildfires going on in California. Um, it's a those are natural disasters. Uh, can you just spend a minute or so and talk about what uh, FEMA is doing for doing out there? I, I assume a lot of these wildfires are still going on.
1: Yeah, so so FEMA continues to to uh, federally support a lot of the efforts that are that are being driven by the state and some of the other federal agencies that work in the, the wild, wildland fires, um, such as the U.S. Forest Service. Um,
0: and uh, if if I can interrupt you, who yeah. who, who leads that effort? That's um, you know that's a little bit different than a hurricane. There are a lot of other agencies that are contributing. So how uh, how does that get coordinated?
1: Um, so I, I'll be honest i I'm, I'm not an expert on sort of the wildfire response. Um, it, it's a little bit different than some of the other Stafford Act um, responsibilities. Um, so I, I'm stepping a little outside of my comfort zone here, um, trying to go over that. Yeah. Uh, one that's of the things that-
0: I, I, I was just sort of assuming it'd be like homeland security or something that would kind of lead that effort, but that's okay. We, we can continue on.
1: Yeah, so, so one, of the, one of the things, though, that we do want to emphasize about uh, wildfires, though, is that um, one of the sort of tenets of, of wildfires is that it can often flood afterwards. So a lot of the, the, the trees are destroyed, a lot of the ground cover is destroyed, um, and then that just allows for a lot of flooding opportunities. So we'd really like to emphasize to people who are in affected areas or, or downhill of um, affected wildfire areas that now is an important time to consider flood insurance. Um, One of sort of the the standard caveats of the standard flood insurance policy that we sell is that there's normally a 30-day sort of waiting period before coverage goes into effect. Um, After certain wildfire conditions, that can be waived. Um, So we wanna make sure that people are are aware that um, that waiting period may may or may not apply uh, depending on sort of the the circumstances. to to take a look, uh, speak with a licensed agent, and make sure that you are addressing your your risk from uh, after a fire.
0: Yeah, and for those that are watching that are unaware, uh, after the wildfire season last year in California, they had uh, a storm or two that dropped torrential rain like, you know, an inch or two an hour, uh, which caused mudslides that actually damaged a lot of property and actually killed people. So it's a it's a huge problem when there's no uh, vegetation to absorb the water. The soil gets saturated; has no place to go. I'll I'll, I'll post some videos on uh, the the mudslides from California for last year, so that people can watch it. Um, can, can we talk a little bit about you personally? Cool. Um, how did you get into this? Uh, walk walk us a little bit through, uh, you know, what you studied and and whether you had this kind of career path in mind all along. So, um, in, in, terms of what I studied, um, I was a political science major,
1: uh, at a small college in Northern Missouri called Truman state university. Um, one of the things that we, we, that I really valued from my education there is it was a heavy emphasis on quantitative methodology and a lot of sort of, uh, program analysis and, and, um, communication skills. Um, so a lot of that, you know, doesn't necessarily translate, you know, the, the subject matter doesn't necessarily translate to, to getting it, uh, a job in the uh, government, but a lot of the skill sets have really emphasized um, those, those characteristics. Um, so, so I ended up uh, joining FEMA about seven years ago, uh, joining as what's called a local hire. So um, after events, there are certain uh, special hiring authorities that FEMA is allowed to use to bring people on to support disasters. And so I started as a local hire, um, and then I kept just sort of moving around uh, different opportunities within FEMA, uh, initially sort of working within the operations and, and the response, you know, some of after the disaster sort of things. Um, and then uh, I was assigned to a special project to work with flood insurance, and I, I really loved it. Um, I think one of the great things about uh, NFIP and flood insurance is how closely we work with the private sector, with a lot of the other people in the community, um, to emphasize and, and to serve as um, you know sort of a force multiplier over what just the federal government can do, and and to get a lot of more people involved in making sure that uh, the country is better prepared and is um, more able to quickly respond after events.
0: Are, are there? Uh, I'm assuming FEMA has uh, plenty of material, but um, if you were if someone was watching and they wanted to um, dig into. Uh, the study of natural disasters, the study of um, how governments can assist natural disasters. Are there any books or materials that you think are, would be um, valuable for them?
1: Yeah. So, so one of the great assets and and I think it's a little hidden um, on, on our part is that we have a number of independent study courses that are available online, uh, sort of a a full, full gamut of everything that FEMA does. um, And a lot of sort of just emergency management principles, um, So so one of the things that that FEMA does is we work with uh, what's called the incident command system. So this is sort of a standardized method of handling events and handling disasters across the country so that, you know, as we talked about earlier, so if you go from one state to another state, that everyone's sort of working on the same sheet of music and that we're able to sort of work in the same best principles and manners. Um, and, And there's numbers of training courses, both about ICS, um, about some of the other response activities we do, about flood insurance. Um, basically, everything that FEMA does has some sort of uh, independent study training course available um, with both video, you know, slide decks, multimedia sort of presentations uh, so that you can all you know, learn about what we do, um, as well as having some other sort of traditional, you know, library documents about some of our best practices and lessons learned.
0: I will reach back out to you. We'll get those links. Make sure we share those on the show notes for everyone, for anyone that wants to do some independent study. Um, So Clerk, this is the part of the podcast where we will uh, transition over to the more personal side and get to know you a little bit more. We already know a little bit about you. Show me state Truman, (laughs) Truman state. Uh, So uh, I want to play a little word game with you. Uh, I'm going to throw you a word or a phrase and just, spit out the first word or sentence that comes out. Um, so
1: so so I'm I'm gonna have to say this is making me a little nervous after that viral <laughs> the guy on the pyramid game. So <laughs>
0: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be very gentle with you.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Uh so my my first word or phrase will be uh Kansas City or St. Louis? Oh um
1: I'm gonna have to say Kansas City uh, even though that's gonna uh my my mom's going to watch this, and she's just going to have a heart attack about that. So, oh boy.
0: Um, I, I will say St. Louis for baseball, though. So, oh well, oh, you will you ruined it because that was my next one. Royals ah. or Cardinals?
1: Yeah, so so Cardinals, one hundred percent. That's not even a
0: question. Okay, um, millennials and insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, complicated subjects. Um,
1: you know, I, I can see behind you uh, the Insuring Tomorrow book, um, which I've, I've had a chance to, to, to read. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for millennials. Um, you know, one, one of the things that, that was kind of addressed in, in that book is the idea of how does this tie into a larger message? How does this tie into, you know, a bigger purpose? And, you know, here in FEMA, that, that's kind of obvious. Um, But looking at insurance more broadly, I I think it's such a tremendous opportunity to actually help people um, to reduce disaster suffering. Um, And, you know, just talking to one claimant, um, you know, you hear that the first sort of story about how, um, you know, they lost everything. And then, you know, with insurance, they're able to get back. Um, I I think that's a really compelling message that I I think the insurance industry could do a better job of, of selling um, it's, it's just a tremendous opportunity to help people, even if you're not, you know, directly talking to them or, or touching them, but, uh, in a way you are.
0: That's fantastic. Um, we'll end wordplay with that. Cause like, yeah, I don't, I don't think we can get any better than that. Um, okay. So when Clark Poland isn't working, what do you enjoy doing? So one of my big hobbies is uh ham radio
1: or amateur radio.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it's, it's kind of, that nerd. still exists? I, yeah, I know. So that, that's, that's what everyone says. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I, I really enjoy is that it's, um, you know, the technological elements, um, you know, there's some of the challenge. And, and honestly, uh, a, a lot of it is kind of, you know, a lot of MacGyvering, um, trying to figure out <laughs> to work, um, making sure that, like, the atmosphere cooperates and is able to uh, you know, do what you want it to do. Um, so it's a lot gonna, of fun. I'm
0: going to have to link to MacGyver. I'm not sure <laughs> if a lot of my audience actually knows who that guy is. That's an I, awesome uh, reference. All I, right. I, well, that, that makes me feel a little old. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, uh, I, I'm going to try a new question. Um, yeah. I've been wanting to do this for a while and I just keep forgetting to do it. If you're going to get stranded on an Island for an extended period of time, what's one album that you would bring with you?
1: So I think that this is also going to be one, uh, a question that's, that's going to start to be dated a little bit once people, you know, forget what albums are. Um, but I think I would have to go with Bonnie Vare's album, Bonnie Um I, I figure if I'm going to be on an island, I'm probably going to be a little bit stressed. Um, I'm probably going to be uh, needing something to, to, you know, keep me a little bit centered. And that's one of those albums that just, you know, I, I'd love to put it on the headphones and it just helps me calm down, cool, and, and, you know, sort of focus and center.
0: I'm not sure if I know Bonnie Vare. Yeah.
1: So he's, um, kind of, uh, a folksy, um, I, I don't even know how to describe him. Um, uh,
0: Okay. But, we'll, we'll link yeah. to it. Yeah. We'll, we'll find the link. We'll link to it. I will become a Bonnie Vare expert before this, uh, broadcast goes <laughs> live. Uh, Okay. So a common question I ask all of my guests, what tools or techniques do you use to stay productive and or organized? So obviously,
1: um, one of the most important things that I have is my outlook calendar. Um, So my general joke with any of my colleagues or or anyone who's trying to schedule meetings is, uh, if it's not on my calendar, it's not going to happen. Um, I, I cannot live without knowing what's up next. Um, Beyond that, though, one of the, the, the tools that I, I like to use is uh, I'm still very much a, a pen and paper sort of traditionalist. Um, so I've, I've got a, a bullet journal that I use. And um, so every day I sit down and on the left hand side of my notebook, I write down my to do list. And then on my right hand side, you know, I have notes for every single meeting that I have. I'm trying to record everything that I do. Um, and one of the other things that I, I like doing with my to do list is um, working sort of a lot of client relationships sort of things. Um, if, if I'm ever working for something for one of the, the write your own to the vendors trying to get an answer, whenever I'm writing that on my to do list, I always like to put the person's name next to it. So that way it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to help that person. I'm not just trying to do that task. So I think that's one of the things that helps keep me grounded and make sure that I'm um, working for uh, customer service, essentially. Oh,
0: I like that. I like that a lot. Never really heard anyone do something like that. That's a good one. And I will link to uh, Tony Kanias's bullet journal. Uh, okay. He wrote an article on that. So that's, uh, that's becoming very popular. Uh, so we'll, we'll share that. And finally, last but not least, what books have you found to be influential in your personal and or business lives?
1: So one of the things that I like to, to read about is trying to understand why people think what they do. Um, and I, I think that's especially important when it comes to risk management because ultimately everyone is having to evaluate their own risk and, you know, sort of the standard economic models of, of risk, you know, you have risk aversion risk preferring and sort of those risk neutral attitudes. But um, we found out that a lot of times that those people don't necessarily think rationally, um, especially when it comes to, to risk. Um, and so two of the books that I've, I've liked to have read, um, sort of talking about the way that people don't necessarily act and you know sort of standard models are uh, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman um, and then misbehaving uh, the making of behavioral economics by Richard Baller. Um, so those those two sort of look at a lot of the ways that um, people act differently depending on um, you know outside of this the standard sort of assumptions um, and then I also like thinking about um, how people act and respond during disasters and other sort of stressful events. And two of the books that I've, I've found interesting to read are The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why by Amanda Ripley, and uh, Sources of Power, How People Make Decisions by Gary Klein. It, it's a I great have, conference call. Three of Behave. these
0: books I have never heard. That's fantastic. The, um, uh, could you repeat the author's name for Misbehaving? Uh, misbehaving was Richard Thaler, or it might be Toller. Okay. Uh,
1: but it's T-H-A-L-E-R.
0: Okay. I'm familiar with his name. He, he uh, they, wrote
1: nudge, Which ah, is pretty popular a couple of years back.
0: Fantastic. This is a great list, especially like uh the two that are related to what you do on a day-to-day basis. That's very that's extremely helpful. We'll get those up on the show notes. Um and out, out of respect for your time, um this has been a great conversation that we've had. We've it's learned so we've learned a lot about um, you know, the uh, particular section that you're working on. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to FEMA. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's marvelous. Uh, the work that you do. I hope, I hope that I can help be uh, what's it called? the uh, info mediary. Yeah, when absolutely. It comes to FEMA. Absolutely. So uh, Clark, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much. My guest this week has been Clark Poland. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Nick.